0: We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA Magazine. And with me today is Chris Smith author of the James Beard award-winning book, The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. Chris lives in Asheville, North Carolina, where he's the founder and executive director of the Utopia Seed Project. And it seems like a perfect time of year to talk about okra. And I have to say that okra is one of my favorite vegetables. I grew it back when I lived in Texas and it is just a stunningly beautiful plant. It loves the heat, it's drought tolerant I love serving it at dinner parties because people were always surprised it could be so good. But let's face it, okra is polarizing. There's the slime, for one, and at the grocery store, you find it in a can, which, no thank you. But beyond that, it turns out okra is a powerful vehicle for telling stories about genetic diversity, seed to stem eating, and even the American slave trade. Chris weaves all that and much more into his book. But before we get to our conversation, word from our sponsor what if i told you there are ingredients that can cheat a humic or fulvic acid test did you know some of the adulterated products sold to farmers don't even contain humic and fulvic acid some companies add these adulterants to inflate their analysis to make a cheaper product look better but it just makes it less effective USDA National Organic Rules indicate that humic and fulvic acids must come from a mined mineral, like humate. Live-earth humates are mined from pure deposits and manufactured with the highest quality standards, so you get pure, effective humic and fulvic products that improve your soil health and plant yields. For over 30 years, humic and fulvic acid is all they do. Trust a leader in the industry. Call Live Earth Products at 435-286-2222 for a free consultation on improving your soil health. Hey, it's Ben again. Just a note on the audio, my microphone was not playing along, and as a result, I sound like I'm at the bottom of a well inside of a bus station. However, Chris's voice comes through loud and clear, which is, after all, the important thing. So here's my interview with Chris Smith. Chris, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm curious how okra came into your life. I'd like to hear about one your first experience with it but also about when you really began to take it seriously.
1: Yeah I uh, as will become quickly apparent did not grow up in America uh, and certainly not the southeast of America. I am um, I grew up in England and didn't come here until or came here to live when I I married my then fiancé in 2012, but my first experience came about six years before that, when I was just over here on, you know, a vacation, a kayaking trip, and it was—I'd never heard of okra. I don't think I'd ever eaten it before, unless it was buried in some Indian curry that I'd had in in England, and it was just a greasy spoon in Clayton, Georgia. And it was kind of pushed across. It, it as almost like a a joke, like try this southern delicacy. And it was maybe a lot of people could relate to just a a first and terrible experience with something that was gooey and kind of tasteless and felt like it had been cooked in like real old oil. And it was just it was just deeply unpleasant. And I think a lot of people have that experience and then never give okra a second chance. But luckily, I. Um, I was given an okra pod a dried okra pod I'm a, I'm a gardener and a seed saver and as a wedding present so back to 2012 given this dried okra pod and so when I had a chance to plant it in my own garden it was a it was a way to experience and interact with okra in a whole new way so it was it was definitely a new leaf and that I think from the get go just be, receiving an uh, seeds as a present is kind of a weighty gift so I started taking it seriously straight away because i was like wow these the seeds come with a, a history and a story and now they're it's on my shoulders to kind of carry that forward so i, I, I think i i jumped into it pretty quickly uh, from the get-go apart from that first bad greasy spoon experience
0: what, what is your background um as far as farming agriculture horticulture
1: yeah, I, I've had a bit of a, a circuitous path to where I am today, I guess. I, I grew up in a in a green thumbed farming type family. Um, you know, cousins owned large acreage in England and Wales. Uh, my older brother was kind of destined to be a horticulturist from about the time he could walk and followed that path through university and and now does a whole bunch of uh, Royal Horticultural Society shows and all that sort of stuff. And my mum has a small seed company and, and that kind of thing. So I was exposed to it, but I never embraced it. And I, I went off and became kind of like a, a kayaking, climbing coach and did a master's in creative writing. And, and you know, it was just kind of enjoying life and, and traveling around a bit. And when I finally came to settle in America, um, I was just kind of hit in the face pretty hard by what I perceived to be a pretty broken food system. And I decided to kind of leap into initially gardening and and I progressed into farming. So in in many ways, I'm quite new to it. But on the other hand, once I embraced it, I realized that whole childhood osmosis had had a bigger effect on me than I realized. And I was able to uh, realize I knew what I was doing more than I knew I knew what I was doing kind of thing.
0: And so so when you're not writing James Beard award-winning books. You're, what is your day, day job? You work for a seed company, is that right?
1: Uh, so up until the end of last year, I worked for a small seed company in Asheville, North Carolina called So True Seed, uh, a wonderful company with a, a good mission of uh, seed saving and promoting seed sovereignty. But the beginning of this year, I, I went full-time on a project that I'd been uh, meditating on for a good few years called the Utopian Seed Project. And so we currently a very new and small nonprofit, but we are uh, investigating and experimenting and exploring diversity in food and farming. So it's kind of actually taking the, the okra concept of growing a lot of different varieties and exploring a lot of different culinary uses, but applying that to a whole bunch of different crops. Uh, so it's a real exciting project to really try and I guess, ask more of our food system. I I feel like we're a little bit cheated by what's on offer in the supermarkets and we could demand and grow a a lot more variety. And and that's
0: really kind of what the okra story that you tell in the book is is about, is kind of genetic diversity. I mean, really the book in a way is sort of a a vehicle for touting that message.
1: Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I I would say that's a, a big component of, my belief system is that this this idea of a broader genetic diversity in our farm systems and food systems can lead to greater resilience uh, for for the planet and the people that live on it. So I, th- that's like definitely something that I believe in and work towards. And there was no way that I could write a book on okra, a, a crop that I believe fully lends itself to that idea and ideology without that theme coming through quite strongly. So yeah, I would I would say that's accurate.
0: Well let's take a step back and, and talk about origins. Okra is a world traveler. It's being grown everywhere, but there's a mystery as to where it all started. Tell us about Okra's murky beginning and also how it came to the Americas.
1: Yeah, it's it's not there there is no agreement on it, which uh is something that in my research you know it was kind of quite frustrating it's nice to do research and find answers but i did research and found questions so it's definitely got some pretty strong family ties to you know it, the country of india and the asian continent in general and and those ties are mainly because most of the related species within the genus ablemoschus which is okra's genus uh, can be found in that region, so that's a you know that's a pretty strong argument. But then, like the earlier uh, evidence of domestication and some of the uh, terminology around okra definitely point towards it originating in the Ethiopian region of Africa. So I, I kind of settled on a a compromise conclusion in that it, it probably did originate in some kind of wild form in in the asiatic region but then was almost certainly domesticated Uh, and maybe it was like domesticated in both places independently that's i don't think ever going to be known but uh i'm pretty sure it was domesticated in ethiopia uh, and that region and then traveled across and is a major crop on the west coast of africa and that was where it was originated for the the American journey where it was effectively stolen along with a whole bunch of people in the slave trade and brought across uh, as one of the the many crops that came across with the the enslaved people to the Americas in the 16-ish hundreds.
0: It was kind of interesting that how I didn't understand that this is maybe how one conducts horticultural history but you were looking at at kind of word histories in order to figure out maybe where its origin was. What, how many names are
1: out there for Okra? Oh, wow. I, I don't have a number to, to put to that, but, um, I mean, once you, you know, Africa is a continent of many countries and within those many countries are many cultures. And within, <laughs> within that, there are lots of languages. And I think, there are variations on words for okra all, all across Africa, um, and then there's variations on the Arabic for like the bamia. Um, you you see that in a lot of recipes. Uh, certainly, Middle Eastern type recipes will be bamia this, bamia that. Um, so Turkish uh, language origins are, are similar, so there there are uh, there are a lot of different variations when you come into that and. And I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm not a botanist by training or an ethnobotanist or anything like that. So I I was uh quite an innocent child researcher in many ways. And what I found interesting was once once you discovered these different names for okra, it opened up whole windows into accessing other cultures. Because if if you've got a whole food culture that calls okra something other than okra, Then you're not going to access that without knowing what it's called so if you're just searching for okra you're just going to find uh this narrow world uh you know white person western vision of things but as soon as you know those other words for okra in other cultures then you can really start digging into all those different cultures and i i think that's really important you know for many reasons but certainly from uh, a research exploration perspective
0: yeah and and you you foreground that throughout the book the sort of rich and diverse cultural history that okra has throughout the world where is it being grown the most the, the US isn't really on that list
1: is it uh no no not not at all really um and actually i think i don't know if this is still accurate i've not looked at the the numbers uh, in the last couple of years but uh, a lot of our okra is coming from Central America um, as a as an import crop. Even though we're very capable of growing a lot of it in the in the southern parts of the USA, uh, India is by far and away the largest producer of okra in the world. And then, uh, and you're making me remember my research now. But I, I'm almost certain Nigeria is the second largest producer in the world, although it trails quite a quite a way behind India um uh, on that on that um scale that the uh the foa put out every year so um and then a, lo- a lot of those african countries are, are pretty high producers it it, it really is a, a a big crop in a lot of the uh, african cultures
0: and why hasn't it caught on in the u.s is it just a demand issue or is it is it, a, it or does it say something about our food system here
1: you know, this, this is a question that I've I spoken to a lot of people about before writing the book and after writing the book. And I guess the honest answer is I just really don't know. It's, it's got so much going for it as a crop. It's, it's got so much potential. It's easy to grow. It doesn't need the same level of inputs as other crops. And yet it's got some level of cultural disdain that just, I think, stops it going mainstream in a way that I, I I don't understand why it's not got past that, um, especially when we look at some of the American history, like the USDA puts out bulletins about crops. And in the early 1900s, they were really quite positive about ochre and its potential. We were kind of like we we're in sync with our thinking, like, you know, this everyone should be growing this crop. It's really quite incredible. But then by the mid 1900s, another bulletin was put out by the USDA and they used language like um, generally considered too mucilaginous for the American taste. And that, that shift from it being like this, this wonderful crop to this, you know, generally, basically it's too slimy, happened. And, and I, I, I don't know quite where that shift came from, but there was some public opinion mentality change that led people to, you know, not really, not really wanting to grow or eat okra. And and it may have been, you know, that there was probably an increase in imports. There was certainly refrigeration and then greater access to other types of food that were probably considered more exciting um, at the time. And and okra just kind of like fell fell off, um, which is kind of sad, but I, I do feel like it's making a comeback.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned okra's eucilaginous qualities. Um, and that's that's definitely what people talk about. If you bring it up and, and you detail that pretty
1: extensively in the book, um, what causes it? Basically, um, there are some plants, and a lot of the Malvaceae family plants display this quality. Uh, but it's not just Malvaceae um, that it's kind of a it's what allows okra to be drought tolerant. It like has its own kind of gelatinous. Uh, Protectant. Um, that means it doesn't dry out, basically, and so it's really useful as a kind of a drought-tolerant crop. Uh, it's uh, chains of polysaccharides that form in the cell structure of the entire plant, and when they're broken, then we get this kind of like mucilaginous sliminess to it. So, you know, you can have a whole okra pod in your hand, and it will never feel slimy. It's not like it's inherently a slimy plant. once you start breaking it up or cutting it or crushing it then that's what um breaks those cells and allow those polysaccharides to kind of have this this sliminess to them i mean you talk about it making a comeback and it and it does
0: seem that right now you're seeing the effects of climate change every day Um, it does seem to be sort of the plant for the moment
1: i i certainly like I, i worry to some extent that i'm somewhat biased having you know spent a good chunk of my uh american life kind of immersed in okra that you know i'm the wrong person to ask objectively whether okra is gonna you know save the world but w- w- if i try and be objective then definitely it's it's very productive in fact that's something people complain about which is something i've never quite understood but it's it's very very productive It's got this beautiful, awesome, deep tap root. Um, I spoke to somebody just recently. They've started using okra in some cover crop mixes because its flowers have extra floral nectaries. So they're really good for a, a beneficial attractant, but also that deep, aggressive root system like the Southern pea allows it to be drought tolerant and to inject organic matter deep into the soil and bring up those nutrients from, from deep down as well. So it's got these kind of just real kind of superhero plant characteristics and it's really, you know, delicious, edible, versatile, uh, and nutritious. So it's, it's got a lot going for it. Um, and I think just the, there's two aspects as one, obviously you, you'd you mentioned the demand. We we need to do some work on educating and demand and, and product development, which is, slowly starting to happen, things like the, you know, dehydrated okra chips and and that kind of thing, uh, and move beyond just the simple uh, fried okra, frozen okra-type paradigm. Uh, And I think that's happening, uh, and as that happens, then I think more farmers will get on board with wanting to put a a few acres into okra.
0: You know, back when I lived in Austin, Texas, I grew a lot of okra um, in, in my garden, and it really is a beautiful plant, and it and it just has an allure to it that I think if you don't grow it yourself and you only see it coming out of a can or you only see it as a side at a barbecue restaurant or something like that, you don't really understand that. I would love it if you could break down sort of just all the components of the okra plant, all its uses, because I think that was one of the surprising, most surprising things in the book is just how versatile it is
1: yeah um and it's it's interesting that that, you know that comment on you wouldn't really know what the plant looked like and that 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 to me speaks to like almost the nub of the problem this disconnection from our food system so we only see that that final product and we allow ourselves to judge the rest of the system based on what we see right at the end uh which which is really not fair because okra could be grown and, and multiple people have commented to me that it, they do grow it as a landscaping plant it's um it, it grow it can grow tall in the heat although there are dwarf varieties that will top out at about two feet uh and generally it's like got a a, a central stalk i guess you could kind of think like a, a sunflower thick central stalk and then it puts out lots of side branches which have these big green often red veined glossy leaves Uh, the leaves are edible and really protein rich rich. and actually uh, i I think they they have all if not well most if not all of the essential amino acids that we need in, in the leaves so the leaf itself offers a really good uh summer green food source and then once it starts flowering that's when people really tend to fall in love with it as an aesthetic plant uh, if you are aware of hibiscus flowers or uh, rose of Sharon or any of the other kind of showy large petaled flowers with a cent, like a, a big central stigma that protrudes it's it's a real beautiful flower it's cream colored creamy yellow colored but some of the varieties have these beautiful red whorls that kind of come out of it so it's it can be quite stunning in the field and again the the red varieties can be uh, fully red stems sometimes like deep deep purplish burgundy red stems that will extend down the petioles and sometimes through the leaves so it's the red varieties that people often comment as being the the best landscaping plants and then the pods kind of just after it flowers then the pods grow out and we're used to them being harvested pretty standard green pods is what you see in the supermarkets maybe four inches long but depending on the variety they they can stay tender at longer lengths and then you get a whole uh great variety in the in the pod shape you can get these really short stubby ones the green ones can have red coloration on the end which kind of streaks down the pod and there's some varieties that kind of curl and whirl like kind of crazy cow horns Uh, There's long slender ones, there's deeply ridged ones, there's smooth ones, uh, there's fully red ones and and purplish ones. And then the green colors can also go super pale down to uh, kind of yellowish, whitish colors as well. So there's, you know, there's there's a lot to explore when it comes to varietal diversity within okra, which is really quite exciting. And then once those pods mature through to uh, seed saving stage, it's about 40 days after they flower they get through to this mature seed stage where the seeds go hard and brown you wouldn't want to eat the pot at that stage because it'll be really woody and fibrous but those seeds have so many different applications uh, there's a guy in atlanta clay oliver is pressing them for a seed oil you can grind them into a flour and we made okra flour okra seed flour sourdoughs and muffins and pancakes and that can be stored as a thickener as well so there's there's a in terms of the dual, triple purpose nature of crops, okra really stands tall as something that can uh, give you multiple yields from a single field.
0: We'll talk about genetics. You're doing experiments of your own. Um, in the book, you detail uh, farmers who've been sort of doing selective breeding for, in some cases, decades.
1: So, well, I've got, I've got a. a Seed breeder a friend that says t- to not make selections is to make selections, and he's really speaking to the the idea that plants are always uh, adapting and evolving anyway. So if you if you're saving seeds, just the act of saving the seed is is a kind of selection. But if you come at that with quite a high level of intentionality, then it turns out that okra is really quite adaptable. So you can steer it in any number of directions. Um, Clemson Spineless is probably the most famous okra out there. It's certainly the one that most people tell me that they've grown or they know, or and it's certainly in farm systems that seems to be what's uh, largely grown. Uh, that or some of the some of the uh, newer hybrids. Uh, and that started off just as somebody in his back garden uh, in South Carolina, basically had a plant that was producing spiny pods, and he noticed that some of the pods uh, were not spiny and just started saving seeds from the non-spiny pods. And over time, you know, this is just classic selection. He just kept on saving from the ones that were not spiny and ended up with a variety that was released and became world famous uh, as Clemson spineless. And that's, that's been done by other people in, in other places to produce like heavy branching, Pods, um, and then all the other breeding work is basically just making crosses between varieties that you have traits that you want, and then selecting out the uh, the trait that you want to stabilize into your new variety. So it's very easy to do on a, a home scale, small farm scale.
0: Tell the story of the Okra Man and how that ties into the importance of
1: seed independence. So that was a guy that I met at a Southern SarG conference. Which is a sustainable farming conference in the south. And uh Edward, Edward Lenoir was his name. And he he told me that he had been uh cutting okra because he, he started um, harvesting okra for his his mama when he was 10 years old, I think he said, Um, because she didn't like the spines on the okra. So he'd been harvesting okra. He was he was 70, I think. So he he was about he'd been doing it for about 60 years. And when he decided to start kind of farming, he came across uh, a variety of okra that he really, really liked. Uh, But it was a hybrid variety of okra. And I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of that variety, even though I just planted it recently. (laughs) It will come back to me. Um, So it was a hybrid variety, which means uh, a, a company has decided to maintain two parent lines of okra and then cross them to end up with this f1 hybrid this first generation hybrid seed and that's all well and good you get hybrid vigor uh you get to have this uniformity in the field he really liked the traits of this okra and he planted the okra every single year for his whole um farming career and he 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 became known as the okra mound just because everyone loved his okra it's it was he shifted lots and lots and lots of okra every year so that was his kind of main thing and then the company that was producing this particular hybrid Annie Oakley that's the name of this variety Annie Oakley um the people that were producing this particular hybrid decided that it wasn't economical for them to produce it anymore and so 50 60 years after he'd been growing it every single season they just pulled the seed and stopped producing it and he w- he had become reliant on them as a seed source. And even when it got up to like, it was a crazy amount of money that he told me. It was like hundreds of dollars a pound to buy this seed. And if you've ever saved your own okra seed, it's so easy and so productive that you can save a pound of okra seed for very little effort and so he he just become reliant on on this seed production which is was kind of a sad story when they pulled it because he was casting around at this conference for a replacement he was like you know this is my main income this is what i'm known for and now i don't have any more seed to grow this variety and so it 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 really struck me one if he'd been saving his own if right at the beginning he'd saved his own seed um from any variety and just been selecting for whatever he liked whether it was productivity or flavor or disease resistance or spinelessness you know whatever trait was important to him or multiple traits if he'd saved seeds for 60 years as someone that was so passionate about okra the variety he would have today would you know blow every variety out of the water if you bring that level of intention to something for that length of time so that kind of like struck me as this real sad opportunity. And it, it really struck me as sad that he he kind of he had lost that. That seed company didn't care about him and his uh okra operation. They just cared about the, you know, the economics of that seed variety and when enough people weren't growing it or something better came along, they just drop it. And that happens all the time in the seed industry. It's not uncommon. And then the the third part of that story that's not in the book, because it happened afterwards, is he he just had a few of those seeds left, and he gave them to a seed breeder friend of mine, who wanted to. He said, "You know what? Maybe I can stabilize this for you. If if you give me that variety, I can grow it out and reselect out the traits so that we get this as an open pollinated variety." And so he went ahead and did that, and it, it turned out the variety was stable. Like already in in the first generation, he didn't see. First generation after saving the hybrid seed he didn't see any variation at all and this is something else that kind of happens in the seed industry certainly with self pollinated varieties is often crops will be sold as an f one to kind of protect them to like to almost trick you into coming back to get those seeds every year, whereas it turned out he just saved them for one year and replanted them and that genetic variants that you'd expect in that f2 just didn't happen and so now you can go to commonwealth seeds and buy an open pollinated Annie oakley um variety which had been like the proprietary seed stock of this i want to say it was stokes seed company but don't quote me on that um for for like 60 years so it's, it's just a the seed industry is a crazy place to be and um that that kind of just highlighted some of the problems for me Talk
0: about your own efforts in saving seeds and pre- preserving genetic diversity.
1: From working at So True Seed, then we we worked with a lot of farmers to bring on old varieties and, and make sure that they or, always had a place. Um, but me personally, with the okra, I'm kind of in a position now where people are sending me their okra seeds and, and I really enjoy exploring the, the diversity and the histories of those seeds. And so in, in 2018, we, we grew out 76 different varieties of okra, and 60 of them were in the same field. They were right next to each other. And this kind of proves how easy it can be to save seeds, even with um, that many different varieties, because okra is a self-pollinating plant. So it, it's got all the male and female sexual organs it needs to produce its own fertility. And so even though those flowers are big and beautiful and insects will transfer pollen, you can just pop a bag over that flower before it opens and all the uh, pollination happens within the bag and there's no chance of cross pollination. So I was really easily able to save pure seed from 60 different varieties, even though those varieties were right next to each other. And so it's kind of, I've, I've been able to build up this collection of seeds and continue to preserve those stories of the seeds and the heritage. And what's really important to me is start giving those seeds back to people. There's one there's one variety called Sea Island Red from the Georgia Sea Islands that was given to me by by a friend down at the University of Georgia who'd re- received them from a lady called Cornelia Bailey, who was one of the seed matriarchs of um, Sapelo Island, which was one of the 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 main islands down there where they were doing a lot of seed saving and and agriculture and she had died and some of her traditions and seeds had kind of died with her so these seeds felt really important to me and they were really like the in my mind they belonged to the gilligichi and so i i grew them out for one year and i gave some to so true seed who now sell it as a variety but i i made sure to send them back down to I've got one chef friend, Chef B.J. Dennis, who gave me a recipe for the book. I made sure I gave them to him and to Jovan Sage and to the people that were living in coastal Georgia to make sure that those seeds were back with the people that had cultivated them for so long. And I think that's a really important part of the the seed story is they, they belong to, I believe in seeds being, you know, an open access thing, but I also... Uh, think that that heritage and the culture that goes with the seeds is really important to respect as well. What surprised
0: you most when you were doing your research for this book?
1: I think the thing that surprised me the most was that there was so much of it. Like Because I, I didn't have all this information that's in the book in my brain before starting the Okra book project. I was kind of like almost... I was near the beginning of my okra journey when the first idea for a book came up from, from an editor that had seen a presentation that I gave on okra and said, oh, this would make a really good book. And I was like, that would be wonderful. I've got a degree in creative writing. I would love to write a book. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a serendipitous start to the okra project. I was definitely passionate about okra and, and loved the idea, but I I'd, it wasn't like I'd had a 20-year career in okra and was like, oh, now I'm going to write a book about all, all that I know about okra. So um, a lot of it was a learning process and it was just crazy. I would go down one hole and then have a tangent hole and then another hole. And these these rabbit warren type mazes of okra research and discovery just kept on going and going and going. And at some point I just had to sort of say, stop and just say, oh, this this chapter needs to be done. Otherwise I'll never, I'll never finish writing. And so it's been really exciting to continue the work after the book and just speaking to people and, and continuing to read and research, just always new things are coming up. And, and so I, th- I think the most surprising thing was that there's still surprises to be found after writing a book on okra. Um, and that's that's kind of a fun place to be, I think.
0: And, and it is a fun book, but at the same time, it doesn't shy away from some of the darker passages in okra's history namely its role in in the slave trade talk a little bit about that and and why and how it made its way to the
1: americas the the more i i read and learn about the actual like details of the slave trade the more horrific and disgusting it becomes and you know maybe that's some naivety there and it shouldn't be that surprising but it was really really terrible like beyond imagination terrible uh and yet it happened for a long period of time and part of the intentionality and the cruelty that went along with the slave trade was that the the slave traders seemed to be extremely aware that if they were going to steal a people from their homeland, then they better also steal their food, so that when they try and relocate these people and have them uh, be slave labor, then they're going to be able to feed them the foods that they know in order to like get maximum efficiency out of the the slave, um, the enslaved people. So it was all all very intentional. Um, and it, it my, Michael Twitty writes about this in, in quite a few essays that I've, I've heard him read and he, he published the cooking gene that, um, uh, also won a James Beard award in, in 2018. So he, 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 he does a much better job than I can, um, of explaining a lot of that. Um, and then Judith Carney wrote a book, um, about like the, the migration of foods from Africa to the americas and it, it was yeah it was all very intentional to bring them across here so that's that's kind of like seems to be the 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 likelihood of like the, the quick adaption of these seeds in the americas but then there's also some some tales um and stories and and this has been backed up with some like kind of ethnobotany type research that these seeds were also precious to the people that were growing them along the coast of West Africa and while there was very often little warning to being abducted then they were able to like braid seeds into their hair and continue that heritage and also have that kind of anchor to their motherland when they were um, abducted and, and relocated in a new and foreign place that they were they were allowed to have their own garden and often that was the only way they were able to have like some additional sustenance and the you know the adaption of collards into african-american cuisine and and the continuation of growing okra um those types of things is something they they were allowed to do and it's kind of interesting the way it's kind of works in reverse they weren't allowed to read and they weren't allowed to write but they were allowed to grow their food and then lo and behold we have these early 18th century uh, white women cookbooks that are talking about many of these African food crops as if they're their own Uh, and it's almost certainly the work uh, and the recipes and and the food of the the enslaved cooks on, on the influence of those cookbooks but none, none of that is recognised, and and today, to this day, I think that happens a lot. There's a, a not a total lack, but a, a a hefty lack of recognition of the uh, that kind of horrible history of how these crops got here. And I, I, I just think it's disingenuous not to talk about um, that botanical heritage, even if it's. Uh, raises these specters and, and uncomfortable conversations like if you can't have those conversations then you can't move forward and I think that's you know right Right in this moment where we're seeing that quite clearly that people need to wake up realize that this happened work on healing and reparation and mourning and understanding in a way that hasn't really happened even though technically slavery finished you know over 100 years ago it's Uh, it's pretty disgusting where we are right now. And I I think some work needs to be done.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was reading those passages in the book, it was kind of reminded me of the sort of controversies that are going on right now, kind of around this idea of a global pantry. You know, I think Alison Roman is one sort of YouTube YouTube personality, uh, New York Times personality who... Cooks with a lot of um, different ingredients, you know, that are taken from all over the world, cultures all over the world, and there seems to be a tendency to present these ingredients as as something everyone should be using, Um, but there isn't always um, a context supplied along with that.
1: In in writing a book on okra, I was very conscious about like what my what my place was in in this and i I feel very much an outsider in the south you know i'm i'm british and i relocated to to the southeast of america and fell in love with ochre, and then ended up writing a book on it and um kind of in some ways discovered a lot of this along the way i've been lucky enough to travel a lot and part of traveling that i enjoy the most is enjoying the you know the the vastly different and and wonderful cuisines around the world and and the cultures and the foods and i think that food can be the great connector and can be something that can allow bridges to form and and sharing food is a way to share culture and so i very much support and encourage people to embrace cross-cultural cuisines and and bring in food from all different places to to enjoy but i think if we do that without appreciating uh, the culture and the history and the context then we're missing the importance of that kind of bridge building cultural connection that food can do and and in some ways stealing from the people whose culture it is like we we should be having the people that know and love the food the best um we should have their voices and that's one of the reasons it was so important to me that all the recipes in the book were from southern chefs and um there was a good representation of african-american chefs because you know this is their food and i wanted them to share their experience with their food um as much as possible
0: well, the book is just filled with recipes and you know i think it'd be great if we could talk a little bit about how to cook okra personally i i like it grilled typically people think of fried okra or maybe gumbo um but as you detail in the book the possibilities are way broader than that talk about how okra is used in different cuisines throughout the world
1: yeah i um i love jessica harris's the african cookbook um, she uh, has like a a, it's a hefty book uh, with um, recipes from countries all over Africa. And uh, one thing that's always stuck in my mind that she talks about in that book is um like she, I think they, I forget the actual verb they use, but like macerating okra into this like gluey mass and then using that as a base to kind of like hold together a whole bunch of other ingredients. And Virginia Willis has written a book called Okra and she, um, she has a, a Nigerian black-eyed pea and okra fritter that kind of has the same theory. You macerate the okra into this um, just slimy <laughs> blob and then you mix in, uh, you know, I forget what's what the vegetables are, but the black-eyed peas and probably onions and garlic and stuff and you make these bowls that you fry and they're just delicious. Uh, actually, Vivian Howard in her book, The Deep, Deep, Run, Deep Run Roots, I think it's called, same thing she has like a a southern veg southern summer vegetable fritter that uses okra as its binding agent uh, and it mixes in like sweet corn and scallions and and whatever else is kicking around and just fries them and it it produces this really fresh light even though it's fried it feels good for you because it's just stuffed full of vegetables um and there's nothing binding it together other than the okra which is really cool and so i've used that idea. Uh, I often take the the larger pods that have gone a little bit fibrous and dehydrate them and powder them. And So I have this jar of powdered okra pods on my shelf, and that's kind of my go-to cornstarch substitute. If there's a if I have a soup that needs thickening, or I've accidentally added too much water to my dal, or I want to make some vegetable patties and they're falling apart, what what I, I just put a spoonful of this. Okra pod flour, and it just sucks everything together, and just gives it really good consistency and flavor, and and it's got all the nutrition of the okra pods too. So, I feel like that's a really good way to use okra in a way that we don't necessarily think about it in in the southeast. I I guess we're all aware of the thickening properties of okra from gumbo, but this is kind of like taking it to the next level.
0: Well, what do you tell okra skeptics? when they ask for a method for cooking it
1: or eating it? I think this is the way, you, you said you like it grilled. And that's certainly the way that most people have told me that they've converted okra skeptics and I've, I've used it too, is you can either roast it in the oven or, or actually grill it on a, on a grill. But it, you basically just take the whole pods and sling, uh, slice them lengthways a little bit of oil and salt, quite a high heat, maybe like 425 Fahrenheit. And you just throw it in the oven until the pods kind of start browning and charring a little bit. So they're kind of crispy, crunchy. Those brown spots go a little bit sweet, um, like kind of like caramelized onion sweet. Uh, and then put them on the table in a big bowl and have some sort of dip to go with it. Like mayonnaise, pesto or an aioli dip or something like that. And, one, it's super quick and easy, so anybody can try it. And if you grow your own okra, you end up with a lot of okra. So it's a nice kind of go-to dish just to have a couple of times a week because um, it uses a lot of okra and it's quick. Uh, but it's also delicious. My, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and they both enjoy eating it. And everybody that I've given that to enjoys it, even the people that don't really like okra. So that's that's a pretty simple Go to, th- people call them okra fries, roasted okra, grilled okra. It's all variations on the same same idea.
0: One thing in the book that really surprised me was how nutritious okra is. I mean, it stacks up to "quote unquote" superfoods.
1: Yeah, um, that I spoke to a nutritionalist recently who who expressed the same surprise and has since um, committed to. Including it in a lot of her kind of dietary recommendations, it's it's kind of like it's a low calorie food, um, but it's it's got a lot of vitamins and minerals. It's it's high in vitamin A, C, and K, and then it's got uh, calcium and magnesium and some other micro uh, nutrients in it that make it good. But then that 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 sliminess that people seem to dislike so much um, actually ends up Making it a really good food for the digestive tract. Uh, we, you know, we we spend a lot of money on some people spend a lot of money on these, you know, fancy aloe drinks and chia seed puddings and stuff like that. Um, and it's really the this that sliminess of those things that makes them really good for the digestion. And and okra has all of that going for it as well. So it's really good for the uh, the stomach and the colon. Um, and we obviously all learning that that. Good health is as important as anything else. Uh, you know, the whole stomach is the second brain. Type of um, research that's coming out these days. So, uh, okra supports supports a healthy digestive system as well. Have
0: you seen that being used anywhere in, as part of like a marketing campaign? I mean, is is big okra starting to talk about
1: a uh, its superfood status? It's 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 kind of getting there. There's um. Uh, you know, some some health food smoothie people are putting, recommending to put a cup of frozen okra in the um in the smoothies. Uh, I think it's it's good for lowering cholesterol. Um, there's been some studies uh, of its anti-cancer um, properties. There's there's more and more kind of like health-related medical research coming out ab- about it. So you see a little bit of it in those kind of worlds. There's actually a, a health food supplement, um, that I, I saw once that basically had, it was like, I forget the specific name of it. It was something very specific. And actually people have emailed me saying, Hey, I take this. And it really helped out, um, my digestive issues, but it's basically got an okra base to it. Um, so it, it is starting to make it into the supplements, uh, to some extent. And, that's probably when something truly crosses over into like kind of a, a health food type thing is when people start putting it in tablets, which is kind of sad. But that's that seems to be the way it works.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask: Do you have mixed feelings about that? You know, like do you, do you foresee okra becoming like the the next CBD or something like that?
1: I mean, i I do have mixed feelings about that. I I have mixed feelings about the whole superfood thing because to some extent, it 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 does feel like the white man's badge of approval you know suddenly we call it a superfood and we're hey let's all celebrate moringa leaves and this that and the other um whereas there's cultures around the world that have known that it's like an excellent food to eat for for centuries um and we're just kind of catching up uh so i i kind of have a little bit of conflict there but at the same time i think it's a good thing that people are realizing that okra is really good for you and it's inevitable that there's going to be industries that crop up and if we can grow a whole bunch of okra and we don't need to have all these externalized farming inputs to deal with uh you know soil deficiencies and and pest problems that okra tends to be much better at dealing with then i think well all the more for it, if we can displace some acres of corn and soy with okra, then that 's going to be a good thing for the environment and the people that end up eating those crops in the long run so it's it 's inevitable to some extent that as something becomes more popular, it 'll spin off in many different directions and i kind of I kind of accept that, but i 'm going to keep growing my own okra and eating it raw in my garden, as I try and do with most of my vegetables, and I will continue to encourage other people. To grow their own food or source it as locally as possible.
0: From a culinary perspective, um, chefs, particularly in the South, are sort of staging an okra renaissance. Talk a little bit about that. What are what are some developments you're seeing? What are some things that you're excited about um, in your work with chefs in your area?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of nice to see that it's you know it's coming coming onto more and more menus and and less as just a side in barbecue joints where it's kind of deep fried or you know uh, deep south uh, gumbos and stews and stuff so it's, it's good just to see it cropping up as a as a true vegetable and you're, you're seeing it grilled or, or, or steamed or you know prepared in a way that's showing the vegetable and not it being hidden in something. Uh, there's there's some creative usages for sure. I, Sean Brock did a slime extract of okra and used that slime in a dish. Um, so it's, it's kind of, that's taking the thing that people dislike about okra and really like turning it on its head and celebrating it. And I certainly appreciate that. Ian Bowden is a chef from Virginia that won a, a Star Chef Award. And his his okra dish had, uh, I think it had the small leaves that had been deep fried, and he, he says he likes serving them naked because that's when you really get to appreciate the foods. So it's just a straight up okra leaf on your plate, which is pretty cool to see from a you know, a really top-end chef. Um, he was extracting the, the immature seeds from the, the pods and pickling them to make kind of little crunchy capers uh, on the side um so that that was kind of fun to see those creative usages of them but but what really makes me happy is when you you see it on a me- menu as a, a main dish and it's a vegetable um i think we're saying that in some of the the indian uh restaurants like india meat south southern cuisine type restaurants we've got um Marijuana Irani is the owner of Chaipani in in Asheville. And he told me that his okra side, he does these okra fries, which are not deep, they're deep fried, but they're not battered. So you got the whole okra um, sliced lengthways. And it's, he says, is his most popular dish. Like he's known for that dish and everybody comes there and orders that dish and they use lots and lots and lots and lots of okra. And that's pretty exciting to to see to see it having that level of popularity well
0: let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about growing okra is it easy is it is it is there a learning curve um talk about okra in terms of farming systems how do you grow it what what are the techniques that you use
1: for sure and it's worth recognizing that i in terms of scale i've i my strip of land is i've maybe got Sixteen hundred row feet, and i it's not mechanized, so um well I've got a walk behind tiller but um so i'm I'm not really on a super large scale, although I did speak to some people that were doing it on on a slightly bigger scale uh in terms of its ease it's it's considered an easy crop some people struggle with germination, the seeds can be short lived um and they've got a really thick seed coat, so they if they don't get enough moisture they can not germinate particularly uniformly but that can be easily solved just by soaking the seeds ahead of time or making sure that they get a good soaking at planting and i've i've personally never really come across issues with germinating good seeds i've certainly had some bad seeds that just didn't germinate but that that wasn't a germ that was a germination issue because the seeds weren't very good as opposed to struggling to grow it um so once you're past that and they're germinated, then they've got this tap root that goes down incredibly quickly. It can be 12 inches long at about three weeks and just keeps going down. Uh they've some reports have shown it to be like four and a half foot deep after a couple of months. Uh and it's got a, a good lateral spread as well. So that makes it good at mining its own nutrients and good at tolerating drought. I would say that. Your okra pod harvest—the plant's not going to die, but the okra pods will not be at top quality in drought conditions. They get—they grow really slowly and they get really woody really quickly when it's really dry. So, uh, irrigation can be good if you're doing this as a market farmer. It produces like flower pod, flower pod, flower pod, and keeps going. So it's got like a long harvest window, and it loves the heat. But that can be frustrating on a huge scale because basically it doesn't really lend itself to like large-scale mechanized harvest because um, you don't tend to get like a single flush in, in one big go. So um, that that can be a challenge uh, at scale. Uh, a lot of people in in Florida, where they've got the season for it, they'll grow okra as a scavenger crop, so they w- they won't need to put any externalized inputs in but they'll they'll sow the seeds after another kind of prime cash crop and then they'll throw okra in as kind of a second or an afterthought um because it, it's it does a pretty good job of just sucking up whatever it, it needs with that root system it's definitely frost tolerant so i mean fr- frost sensitive so as soon as that first uh, cold snap comes it's going to kind of take out your crop I would encourage certainly like smaller market farmers, I'd encourage them to start looking at the dual cropping potential. It's got this tendency to have its leaves senesce from the ground up. So, as the new leaves grow at the top, then the bottom leaves will die off. And you can kind of preempt that and harvest those leaves before they start turning. And those leaves, like we said earlier, are, you know, a protein rich, green, leafy vegetable, um, which could certainly give an earlier market crop uh you can harvest the flowers i've got people in Asheville selling the flowers at like a dollar a flower and yet you can only sell okra you know anywhere from three to six dollars a pound and so even though by harvesting the flower you're losing the pod potential because it's a it's a perfect flower it's not like a squash that's still a pretty good market price if you've got like a a fancy chef or something that wants to buy a bunch of flowers every week then there's no harm in going through and harvesting some flowers for that chef and then letting the rest go to to okra pods and and selling them so yeah it's definitely definitely works in in small farm systems as as a crop that's gonna give you a good harvest through that kind of like really hot challenging month of august certainly in the south
0: well what role could okra play or does it play in soil health i know you know, other plants like, like hemp, for example, that ha- similarly have um, large taproots, or have, have, can play a role in phytoremediation and things like that. What what kind of impact does okra have on the soil?
1: Yeah, I've not read anything about the uh, phytoremediation of of okra roots. Um, I did theorize that because of its root mass then it would be really good at remediating compacted soils and just the the general cover crop theory of you know getting that organic matter deep down as a quick growing annual and then you know chopping down the top and leaving the roots in whether you till them or not just leaving them in there is going to create good aeration and Uh, organic matter deep into the soil so that was kind of a just a a thought of mine after reading about the the root reports and so it's been good to see or or hear more recently that some cover crop companies are incorporating okra seed into their their summer cover crop mixes Uh, it works as a forage crop in that system as well so yeah mainly that deep deep root system that's going to bring up those like Mining for minerals is where I see it being best used in in improving soil health
0: and you can even grow it in containers, but as you sort of warn in the in the book it that taproot will uh not necessarily stay contained
1: yeah yeah it's definitely got the potential to to produce in containers but not with high productivity, and I would make that container as big as possible i I tried to grow it in a five-gallon bucket, and it, it bust out and ended up growing in the ground anyway. Um, I would say for the for the soil health, I, I've started growing kind of a, a, a cow pea, southern pea alongside my okra, and the southern peas like growing up the okra and are a legume, so they're, they're nitrogen-fixing and seem to do... Well, southern peas are also drought-tolerant and also have a deep root network, so those two crops together work pretty well like in the same row um, to to give a like a double yield there and then probably together they do a pretty good job on soil health as well.
0: Do you do any kind of foliar feeding programs? I mean I'm kind of wondering if there's kind of a specific profile of what inputs um, okra might need in terms of plant nutrition.
1: Yeah i I do not do a foliar feeding although I have started noticing some uh like late season downy mildew type issues on some varieties, um, which causes defoliation. Uh but it's always later in the season when the plants are slowing down anyway, so it's never really worried me too much. But I might start doing kind of like a, a compost tea type a foliar spray to see if I could get a like an extra push of production right at the end of the season. In terms of I, I've never fertilized my okra fields so i I don't give it any like special treatments or attention although i'm sure like serious okra farmers might have uh better input on those kind of nutrient needs than i do uh in terms of i came across uh baron deficiencies it's kind of like a, a medium need for that um so i'm not i've never really worried too much about supplementing for that. So yeah, I I really haven't done much. Um, and everything I've read says that it's kind of, it's a tough plant that people generally don't waste too much money um, f- feeding or, or sustaining it. You can kind of throw it in and it'll do its thing and, and give a pretty good crop anyway.
0: You mentioned earlier that you grow or have grown more than 60 varieties of okra. Um, if you had to pick one, what's what's what stands out, what variety? Top your list.
1: Wow. Uh well we're, we're now up to having grown over 125 different varieties. So that question gets harder and harder. Um I so my I'll tell you my current favorite, um, which might change next week. Um and it's probably different to last week. But um I I'm really enjoying a variety called Aunt Hetty's Red at the moment. Um that's like Aunt as in a relation, uh, Hetty's Red. And it's a Tennessee heirloom that grows it's it's kind of a deep deep purple all the way through and one thing i noticed with some of the red varieties is they can kind of be a little bit delicate like quite thin pod walls on on the okra pods and and i like i kind of like a stout chunky okra like something you can really bite into uh, and chew and i think they hold up better in cooking and so when i came across anhedi's red it had this real kind of dense pod to it you if you held a red burgundy and an anteddy's red in in each hand you'd notice that this was like a substantial okra Um, and it's got this deep deep red beautiful coloration it's productive it doesn't get too crazy tall you know as a farm system variety um, I think it really stands up well and then we do these taste tests each year and last year I had a I had a farmer grow out um, a larger quantity of Antedys Red, and so we were able to include it in last year's taste test as well as the year before. And in the year in the year before 2018, it was the top tasting red variety we grew. And then in 2019, it it w- was the top tasting variety in one city, and then another city where we run the same test. It came; it was like in the semi-finals, and that was out of 54 different varieties of okra. So it's really got something going for it in terms of its flavor. Um, So it's kind of like ticking all the boxes. It it looks beautiful. It's it's good in a farm system. It tastes good. It's productive. Um, And it's a Tennessee heirloom, so it's pretty close to home. And so I'm I'm really enjoying that one at the moment.
0: So as much as you love it, you're not just about okra. I'd love to give you a chance to talk about the Utopian Seed Project. You mentioned it
1: earlier, but I'd love to hear more detail yeah thank you for the opportunity um and and in many ways the utopian seed project grew out of the okra project i twenty eighteen i had a book deadline or a contractual deadline for the book and um and got some kickstarter funding to go ahead and just kind of s- so true seed allowed me a little bit of time to go away and do this okra trial where we grew these seventy different varieties of okra and a and a big part of growing all the different varieties was then to Celebrate and promote and explore and experiment all the different uses. So we were working with local businesses and and chefs to really play around with lots of the different things you could do with okra. So that that was an exciting project. But I always knew that this type of idea could and should be applied to all sorts of different crops. And that's kind of, I guess, the origin of the Utopian Sea project is this idea that we're exploring diversity in food and farming. So. We, we have three focus areas. One one is very much in the vein of the okra where we're exploring varietal diversity in traditional southern crops. So we're working with southern peas and sweet potatoes and collards um, and just really basically saying, hey, you walk into the supermarket and you see one variety of okra, guess what? Here's just the, the panoply of 125 different okras and all the different profiles and just really trying to get people kind of excited about that potential. Uh, And there's obviously seed preservation and historical cultural stuff along with that. Another exciting focus area which we're really pushing this year is growing tropical perennials as temperate annuals. So turns out that there's a whole bunch of stuff that can be grown as perennials in the tropical regions that we can bring up here and grow as a as kind of a long season annual. And that becomes much more clear if i say like you can grow ginger right Ginger's a tropical perennial sweet potatoes are a tropical perennial we've kind of learned to grow them up here as these temperate annuals but there's way more than ginger and sweet potatoes out there we're growing taro and true yams and arrowroot and achira and yakon, uh bambara groundnuts and all these other wonderful crops that really allow us to have this like cross-cultural connection through food, which is really important to us and we spoke about before, uh, but also diversify our farm farm systems and food systems so that we can be eating uh, and growing a whole bunch of different things. And then there's this thing called climate change that's happening where we're experiencing a warming climate. So learning how to grow some warm weather crops is probably not a terrible direction to go in. So we've kind of got that hedging our bets in the back pocket as well with that focus area. And then the third and final focus area is uh growing edible underutilized uh wild or native edibles. So this is things like the the native pawpaw that can be grow that grows wild all the way up the east coast of America, but has never really uh kind of gone mainstream. So trying to promote some of these crops as as useful uh edibles with a little bit maybe a little bit of breeding work or or promotional work or or working with the chefs. We're we're working with the American groundnut, which is a tuba farming legume, again, native to the East Coast. And in the wild, it produces really small crops. But like in the 80s, uh, Louisiana State University did a whole bunch of breeding work to really increase the size of the American groundnut. And it's really high in protein. It's a perennial. uh, It's really tasty. There's a lot of things going. It's a legume, so it's nitrogen fixing. There's a lot of things going for this this crop but it it's never really made it into mainstream food systems because of some limitations in tuber size uh, and single season production so we've kind of inherited 43 different cultivars of improved american groundnuts and we're starting to carry on that work and try and and get them in front of the right people to get them growing a, a little more widely so we're not just reliant on on potatoes as a main starchy Crop. We've got all these other options that could be part of our food systems with a little imagination, promotion <laughs> type of work. So that that's kind of like the utopian sea project and what what we're trying to do a little bit. So what's
0: next for Chris Smith?
1: I have just started working on my on a proposal for my second book to to pitch to Chelsea Green, which I hope they'll like. Um, and it's it's kind of taking. So the subtitle of the the okra book it's it's the whole okra a seed to stem celebration, and I'd like to take that seed to stem philosophy and apply it to all of the crops that you may grow in your garden because there's a there's a whole lot of food out there that we put a whole lot of energy into growing that people don't even realize you can eat. So I'm I'm gonna try and broaden the horizons uh, on that effort. So it's a, it's a pretty big project, but I'm I'm kind of excited about it. Chris, thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much.
0: There you have it. Seriously, go buy Chris's book. You can find it at the Acres USA online bookstore, and it's a great read. To find out more about Chris and what he's working on these days, go to theutopiaseedproject.org. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA and Live Earth Products. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.